Good morning, everyone. I just want to, I hope you enjoyed that litany just now. We, you didn't ask me to do this, Fran, but we are so fortunate to have these beautifully crafted litanies that guide us each week and help illuminate the scriptures for us. I want to begin by reading our text this morning. It's from Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. And it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Verse 3, So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one who repents. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these sacred words. Thanks be to God. So, we are in the midst of a series of sermons that we're calling From the Ground Up, Stories, Faith, and Practice. We're taking a look at some of our stories here at Peace, our history, and our guiding principles to, first, just remember who we are, and second, to make sure we are keeping those core narratives and characteristics uh, central as we continue to evolve as a community. This kind of reminds me of how sometimes in my own home when I come across a picture from our past, maybe something of when the kids were younger or Heather and I when we had funnier hair, and I take the photo and I move it somewhere, maybe by a sink or the kitchen or a nightstand, and then when we see it in this new setting, it kind of becomes a new picture for us. It stirs up all kinds of things, and that's kind of what we're doing here with our stories. Try it in your own home and see what happens. The core characteristic that I want to explore or re-explore is the principle of non-dualism and non-dualistic thinking. That may sound really boring to you. If so, fret not. We also value short sermons around here, so there's something for everyone. But I think you'll find this applicable to your life and our life together as a community. Father Richard Rohr says that the opposite of faith is not doubt. But instead, the opposite of faith is control. We love faith around here, and we value doubt. For many people, these two are conflicting, not complementary. But here at, at peace, our currency is seeking, not certainty. And we say that doubt is a feature, not a bug, in the life of faith because it keeps us humble, eager to grow, and interdependent on God and others. Dualistic thinking, if you're still wondering what that means, it's thinking that tries to control. It's thinking that says you're either in or you're out. You're either for us or against us. You're either of God or of Satan. 
It's thinking and systems that try to control the narrative of who is saved and who is not saved. It's thinking that is obsessed with identifying who is what. It's thinking that closes down any sense of mystery. Rather than seeing you as a universe in yourself, I can instead put you into a neat category when I'm using dualistic thinking. I can say, ah, you're a gay man. You go over here or probably outside this building. You're a child. You go over here. Please sit there quietly. You're a woman. You go over here in the children's ministry. You're a man. You go up here in front. You're formally educated. You go here. You're appropriately documented. You go here. Dualistic thinking is categorical thinking. And often it is thinking that shaped dichotomy where two options are given to us into which to sort the world. Saved, not saved, acceptable, unacceptable, right baptism, wrong baptism, right interpretation, wrong interpretation. Categories are inevitable in life and our minds categorize automatically. It's just something we do as humans and living this way is fine. Living this way is fine until you encounter an infinitely motivated complex heap of walking cells we call a human. Living this way is fine until tragedy, predictable, controlled God that you thought you knew, well, he didn't intervene or act as expected. A plus B did not lead to C like you expected. Death and taxes aren't the only two guarantees in life. There's at least a third. The predictable God will surprise you and probably even let you down, at which point you have the opportunity to relinquish control and step into the mystery of the unpredictable, uncontrollable God who moves like the wind, our scriptures say. This, then, is the pathway into the non-dualistic mind, or what's also called the contemplative life. In the scriptures that we just read together, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they are not happy. Jesus and the religious people are always at odds because he's not following the dualistic, predetermined, stay-off-the-grass script. It's no different here. In this particular instance, the wrong kind of people are being included in the divine community. Their redemption and inclusion is problematic. And the religious leaders want to know why categories are getting all jumbled up. They might say, this is what separates us from the animals, the Gentiles. After all, we know categories. So Jesus tells them a few quick stories. He invites them into a narrative world to get them out of their black and white rules-oriented thinking. Stories do this for us. This is why we place so much value on hearing one another's stories. So to the religious leaders, Jesus says, there's a shepherd out in the wilderness with the flock. Maybe they're his. Maybe he's just a day laboring hired hand. We don't know, and it doesn't matter because categories don't matter. But when he does his midday count of the sheep, he realizes one is missing. Now, he doesn't say 99%. That's darn near three standard deviations of the mean. I mean, that's good enough, right? He doesn't say, ah, maybe the boss won't notice one teensy-weensy little missing sheep. No, he sticks his neck out there and he risks it all to bring that one back into the community. He leaves the certainty of the 99 behind, right? He says, I could be wrong. 
I might fail, but I'm going to take this risk to find the one that is gone for God knows why. I don't know why he's gone. Maybe he just wandered away. Maybe it was ostracized because and it uses colorful language and it dyed its wool pink. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's just not here. I'm going to go find it. And then when he finds it, he doesn't punish it or drag it back. He his shoulders and he rejoices. And to push his point beyond the absurd, Jesus then adds on. And then when he gets home, he throws a party. Can you see the religious leaders' faces? Uh, that's about the dumbest story I've ever heard. Because the dualistic mind says, sheep that stay put, good sheep. Sheep that go for autonomous walks, bad sheep. But Jesus non-dualistically says, sheep, good You want to put people into categories of sinner and saint? No, 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 no. They're not sinner or saint. They are simply sought. And because he saw the look on their faces, he tells them a second story. Let me me read it. There was a woman, he says. Can you see the religious leaders are beginning to roll their eyes now? Great. A story about a woman. Do you mind? I'm eating. There was a woman, Jesus said, who had ten coins and she lost one. Oh, a financially irresponsible woman. This story has hope, the religious leaders say. But Jesus continues, she lights a lamp and she tears her house apart looking for it. Someone interrupts him. What did her husband think about the state of the house when he got home? But Jesus just ignores this ridiculous comment and he continues. So she searches and searches and searches. It's late into the night. She didn't even stop to eat. She's retracing her steps from the day she's out in the grass looking. She's checking in her car in between the seat and the console, that no man's land where all kinds of things follow or fall. She's lifting up couch cushions. She's looking absolutely everywhere. And finally, she finds it. She would have stayed up for days if needed because every single one is of immeasurable value to her. And the light begins to come on for some of them, and they begin to realize that Jesus isn't talking about coins that slip through holes in clothing pockets. He's talking about people that slip through holes in pockets of bureaucracies and systems and paradigms and categories and theologies. And then he says again, and she threw a big party too. Ah! You with the parties and the rejoicing and the seeking lost ones, it's all so tiring. Just tell us, are they righteous or not? Are they sinner or saint? Are they ritually pure or defiled? Can we eat with them or not? And that will determine if they belong. And Jesus responds, you are obsessed with who is what? You are obsessed with who is saint and who is sinner instead of who is simply sought by God. And so you're missing the party. You're missing the point that this is how people come alive and they flourish. It's when they're invited into the divine community. In the 1960s, the developmental theorist Donald Winnicott developed a theory to try to describe and understand how people develop what contributes to healthy development, what makes a person fully alive. It's been a foundational theory for many theories that followed, and his main premises guide a lot of my own life and work still. And he said, people have a propensity toward growth. People want to grow, but what they need 
is what he called a facilitating environment. They need a place to be nurtured where they can grow. They need a safe and a brave space. They need someone in their life who cares. They don't need a perfect space. They don't need a certain space. They need what he called just a good enough space. That's all they need. There needs to be some uncertainty and mystery and unpredictable, unpredictability. Otherwise, they never fully develop. He's talking about children here, but I think it applies to our life of faith and the spiritual journey also. He said, we don't need a perfect caregiver because the perfect or the all-knowing caregiver meets their needs magically. And again, they never have to grow and be stretched and develop new capacities. They just need a good enough space and a good enough caregiver. And he went on further and he said, the too good parent, the one who magically meets all their needs without them even having to ask or seek anything out, it inhibits their growth. And the not good enough or not present enough, not caring enough parent and environment do the two extremes. The environment giver that is too good inhibits their growth. The environment and the caregiver that is not good enough inhibits their growth. All we need to grow and be nurtured is a good enough space and a good enough caregiver. Maybe that gives some of the parents in the room uh, permission to relax. I don't have to be perfect. I can just be good enough. And I think the same thing applies in the spiritual life. We don't need the dualism of perfection or not good enough. We just need good enough. When we don't have the good enough environment, when we don't have the good enough uh, caregiver, it's not too long before we start talking about lost and aimless generations and subsets and groups. We do harm when we have one of those two conditions. In our text this morning, the sheep and the coins are also identified as lost. But that translation and really that interpretation, it misses something important in the original language and context. It's more faithful to the context and the language to speak of the sheep and the coin, not as simply misplaced, but as being in danger of irreversible damage. When the story includes this particular word for lost, it isn't talking about something that the shepherd or the woman can just go buy or earn more of. It's talking about people. Jesus is talking about people and the damage of being excluded from community. He's saying you all are thinking in categories and statistics and profit margins and systematic theologies. You forget that we're talking about people. We're talking about lives. And the clear and certain categories of dualistic thinking will never be adequate. Here at Peace of Christ, we try to embody and live this out. We don't always accomplish it, but it's the non-dualistic, uncertain, unpredictable, wild goose chase way of practicing our faith that we strive for. It's important to us. We try to avoid practicing the dehumanizing who is what categorization that so much of our society practices. And instead, we try to keep up with the God who is wandering off to look for lost sheep and lost coins. We want our children to have access to this kind of sacred community. We want those in Williamson County and Central Texas to have access to a space like this. For those who don't feel welcome in church otherwise, this is a space for you. Um, In our brief history, we've had the opportunity to practice this many. Sometimes we've 
at it and sometimes not. Might think of that we as leaders, we should have stuck our neck out there to advocate better for a member, but instead we stayed with the 99. I think of that time often. One of the times I think of that we took the uncertain non-dualistic journey was when we were developing some of our bylaws uh, about baptism. Early in our history, the state of Texas required that we submit bylaws to show them that we're legitimate. And so we got a set from a partner church and presto, instant bylaws were legitimate. But before too long, one of our members was perusing the bylaws and brought to our attention the baptism section. It was typical for a Baptist church, and it essentially said, the wetter, the better. Questions were raised. People began asking, what if I wasn't fully immersed? What if I was baptized in a different denomination or tradition? Can I still be part of the community? What if I don't fit in with your dualistic framework? All kinds of questions arose, and we realized that we needed to have a community conversation about this. No big deal, right? What could go wrong? An eclectic church with some Baptist heritage and plenty of divergent views and experiences discussing baptism, something that causes churches to split. What could possibly go wrong? So we were at that point knew we could either take the dualistic certain clear right and wrong route like most churches do and just put it in black and white, make it simple, or we could go into the wilderness chasing a wandering sheep. We could seek the way forward like we were seeking a lost coin. So we decided to make it a community process and a community decision. We gathered together to hear one another's baptism stories and thoughts, and we found that amount of diversity in our experiences. At one of the multiple community-wide meetings that we held, it turned out that only one of us had been baptized in a Baptist church, so that was the only person with a legitimate baptism in our community that night. Not good. And it wasn't one of the pastors, I don't think. Like, not good at all. We looked at the history of baptism in our tradition, and we found a variety of ways that churches tried to be faithful to how they interpreted the scriptures. A good deal of it was just certainty-seeking silliness. For example, some traditions said that all the examples of baptism in Scripture involved running water like in a river, so you could only legitimately be baptized in moving water. So that was their policy. Some churches weren't by a river, so to get around this, they hung pictures of moving water above the baptismal font or stained glass images of flowing water. You'll see this if you go into some Baptist churches. There, check that box. Good. Many said full immersion in a church of their particular denomination was the only right way, and everything else was wrong. Do you see the dualistic thinking here? So they made all new members undergo a new baptism, even if they had been baptized elsewhere or in another Christian tradition. Someone shared a story of a former church he was at where an elderly woman wanted to be a member and the church was willing to have her if she would follow the rules and undergo full immersion baptism, even though she had been baptized in another Christian tradition. She told them she was willing to be immersed up to her chin and then they could pour water over her head, but she couldn't be fully immersed because she had an ear condition, so she couldn't be fully submerged. In the end, they couldn't come to an agreement, believe it or not, and she was never allowed to become a member of the church. We have to be clear, you know, about who's in and who's out. Our currency is certainty. 
We thought that seemed a little extreme, right? Especially since only one of us would qualify under that rubric. So in the end, we crafted a plan that fit our context. We stepped out of the dualistic thinking. We crafted something that fits our people, our our understanding of what it means to be faithful. And we decided to follow the uncertain, unpredictable adventure with God where than policies, and we found a way to move forward together. One of the guiding images of our community has been that of a centered set rather than a bounded set. We talk about this at times, which is to say a guiding image is an oasis where all kinds of animals gather together to drink and get nourishment, and they come and they go as needed, rather than a ranch where you find fences enforcing a monoculture with clear boundaries for who's in and who's out. An oasis, not a ranch. We're trying to gather around the oasis of Jesus, not be artificially partitioned off on a ranch. This non-dualistic journey has led us to make many discoveries along the way. We've made many friends. We've surprised many who thought they were our enemies only to find out we have more in common then separates us. We've surprised many who thought we should be friends only to find out we practice the faith so much differently than many others do. That's okay. Doubt, uncertainty, creativity, pushing the limits and the boundaries of what's predictable and expected, these are features, not bugs, of trying to keep up with the one our scriptures refer to again and again to as the living God. Of course they are. It's the living God. So, to all who are drawn to this uncertain, unpredictable, contemplative journey, to those who want to follow a shepherd through the wilderness, trusting he will find you when you wander off, to those who want to be so prized that she will tear her house apart to find you when you slip through human hands and human systems and human categories, to those who want to be encountered, not as saint or sinner, but simply as sought, we say welcome and buckle up, and thanks be to God. Amen.